0: My name is Justin McClure. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about experimental cinema. And you may be going, whoa, that's a giant subject. It's not like you're doing an episode on action films. You're absolutely right. But I also have to come from the perspective of experimental cinema, I think, out of any genre. Genre. And I put it in quotation marks. (laughs) Is one that people usually feel a little bit more nervous about.
1: And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Mm -hmm. Not only that the films seem um, difficult to understand, but also because they're often not available and it's hard to understand. It's hard to know where to start. Like sometimes they'll be on DVDs or Blu-rays that are long out of print. Uh, Sometimes you have to be able to live in a big city and catch them in a screening series. Uh, Sometimes, you know, seeing them projected in certain circumstances is the only way to see them.
0: And we live in a world right now where the stimulus needs to come instantly. Mm -hmm. And the thing about experimental cinema is that it often approaches from different angles to create different reactions. And if you don't get that stimulus, you're like, I'm bored. I'm on my phone doing something or I'm looking for something else on the Internet. Who has chatted with me recently?
1: And I think most people who get into experimental film probably get in it through school, right? Yes. They go take a course.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit about my personal perspective from when it comes to experimental cinema, because when I was a kid, I had zero interest in it. And I think that stems from a few different circumstances of my life where I was a young kid that was growing up in a small town where I moved when I was in junior high up until the end of high school. And I always felt outside of all my friends and the people that I talk to every day. But instead of trying to kind of uh, rise up above them to look down and be like, I understand this stuff. I became suspicious of anything that was like smart to use a broad sure. terminology, <laughs> principally because I was not a good student at all. I was, I had like C grades or D grades, sometimes failure. Mm-hmm. And when I would see these people just ace stuff like a plus, whatever, I had a distaste for them. And I think that kind of extended to experimental cinema because I am immediately suspicious of it the same way I was suspicious of these people that were very successful. But in day to day life, I'm like, no, you're like
1: super dumb. How do you get such good grades? A classic uh, snobs against the slobs. Yeah, which
0: has come up over and over and over again, which I don't think is the right position to take. But that's Mm -hmm. just where I was when I was in high school. How was it for you?
1: Well, I mean, I'm sure I had a certain amount of Uh, being intimidated by experimental cinema. Mm -hmm. I think when I was in high school, all I really knew about experimental cinema was that Andy Warhol had photographed the Empire State Building for eight hours or something like that. And man, when that bird flew across the screen, (laughs) applause broke out. So it's like experimental cinema was kind of a joke to me when I was in high school. In undergrad, I remember uh, in intro to film, we had a we had one week on it where we saw a film called Touching by Paul Sherrits do you know the film no I don't it's strobe lighting and a guy with like two scissors by his tongue and then this like brain-busting soundtrack where it's like ta chang ta touching, ta touching, 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 touching. So a lot of people hated that.
0: You can't talk about experimental cinema without <laughs> discussing the moment where it turns instantly into parody. Is there anything <laughs> easier to make fun of than that? Yeah. For something that's so broad, you can show somebody like a baby
1: crying and then like an old man walking in slow motion sure.
0: and then like an omelet frying and people
1: will instantly know you're making fun of this. But I kind of got into experimental cinema during the year I spent in New York, uh, which it comes up so often. I'm sorry. It sounds like it sounds like Jonathan Rosenbaum talking about his time in Paris. <laughs> yep. But I'm sorry. <laughs> It was a big time in my life. My mind expanded. I had seen things that I have never seen. Uh, Frankly, uh, well, there's a theater in New York, the Anthology Film Archives. Which was created by experimental filmmakers. By Jonas Mikas, Mm -hmm. uh, the man who more more than anyone else was like the biggest promoter of experimental film. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember one week I went to see a just kind of on a whim, a program of Richard Kern films. Richard Kern was uh, a a filmmaker and photographer from the uh, Cinema of Transgression, (laughs) which is kind of came out of the no wave movement in the Lower East Side in the early 80s. See, just saying words like that, like the eyes in my head are trying to roll back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so there was a particular film in that Richard Kern night called Fingered with Lydia Lunch, which the title is literal yes and i was just watching this almost like like I was being like pressed against the back of my seat. I couldn't believe kind of what I was seeing.
0: So after you saw that, was it like when you went and watched more of these films, was it like you're looking for a feeling that normal cinema wouldn't deliver to you? Oh, absolutely. Mm
1: -hmm. And so, you know, in New York, theaters are constantly showing, whether it's the MoMA or the anthology, they're constantly showing like uh, Stan Brakhage movies because he was just wildly prolific. And I really responded in Stan Brakhage to you <laughs> the directness of the cinema. Uh,
0: Here's a filmmaker we can start talking about right from the get-go because we watch a bunch of his shorts for this. I think that Stan Brakhage is like the touchstone when you're talking about this. Criterion put out a like DVD set of his work and he's also one that when you explain it to someone it's the most tepidation because it's like, okay, so he made this movie it's called Dog Star Man. (laughs) It's like 75 minutes broken up into five parts. The prelude is 25 minutes. It's mostly made up of him watching Walking around, pointing the camera at the ground and lights flashing. Uh, there's also the sun. And I think there's a nuclear explosion somewhere in there.
1: And the birth of a baby. <laughs> yep, that's
0: right. So uh, you want to watch it? 75 minutes? Yeah. And it's like, oh, man. Oh, uh, also, it's silent. Yes. There's no sound.
1: Yes. Um, and, you know, just tons of films that are, you know, him scratching onto the film. Moth Light is probably his most famous short, mm-hmm. which is... How, did, how the hell did he make it? It's like the the wings of a moth activated the camera. And so yeah. it's this very abstract looking film of just a moth's wings.
0: So like when someone explains this to me, my first reaction is bullshit, which <laughs> happens a lot with this kind of stuff, because I guess when you w- grow up obsessing over oturists, what you want is intent in what's going on. Mm-hmm. And when you explain brackets like that, you're like, what? So it just... Anyone can do this, which is like any art, right? Which oh, is like my
1: kid could paint that exactly. Yeah. yeah. And well, your kid didn't paint that. No. First of all,
0: and it's like, what is it supposed to make me feel? Because experimental cinema like it's going against all the things you usually expect. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, the emotions, and am I supposed to be looking for something? Mm-hmm. Is this about the political movement in some country <laughs> I, I am not aware of, that that's what it's really saying? Uh-huh. And I think Brackage, especially if you just sit down and you give your time to something like Dog Star Man, It's so pure in what it is, and as you get involved in it, and, you know, you're going to be searching for, like, what is this? What am I looking at? Yeah. But then it'll suddenly turn into waves, and the actual cuts and the images that are being portrayed, or more specifically, the colors, Mm -hmm. actually, you know, you get enveloped in them.
1: Oh, yeah. So I revisited Dogstar Man this week, Mm -hmm. and I I think I'd seen it a few years ago, but— and i wasn't really looking forward to revisiting it to be <laughs> yep. honest because it is 75 minutes with no plot and no anything but i was just kind of enraptured by it i think it's just an intensely pleasurable film it's it it washes over you
0: uh, the one thing that experimental cinema always made me a little bit nervous is like well what do i know because i'm usually used to criticizing cinema is good or bad. Yeah. And there's that nervousness with like, oh, is this good or is it bad? And like Dog Star Man, that first 25 minute prelude, I was like, I'm all in. Yeah. This is what you see before you die. <laughs> but then that part one, I was like, all right, bracket, slow down. I'm tired of seeing you climb up a hill in slow motion. <laughs> That's too much. Yeah. So it's I think it's, as a viewer if you just feel comfortable enough to be like, oh, I like this or I don't like this and not try to second guess like, well, is this famous? Should I like it? Am I not getting it? Yeah. That you it's easier to kind
1: of enjoy. Well, as I said, Brackage is so direct. Mm -hmm. He's trying to kind of hit you on some primal level that I guess he thinks narrative film can't. And either it does or it doesn't hit you. He made a film called Anticipation of the Night that I think is just extremely beautiful. It's kind of a It's kind of like a child's eye view film, a very small child's eye view film of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think it was probably a huge inspiration on Tree of Life, for instance. Yeah. But watching that movie brought back sense memories of being a small child to me. So it, it just hit me very primally.
0: Or Brackage made stuff that was just more direct, like the one that's just a childbirth.
1: Which which I love, by the way.
0: That one is probably a great intro to his work, because the act of seeing a baby born and the way that he's editing it, it's a very direct emotional connection, mm-hmm. so it's not as distancing as a bunch of colors jumping in front of your
1: eyes. Yeah, that film is called Window, Water, Baby Moving, and it's showing his wife, Jane Brackage, giving birth to a child, but it's also cutting back and forth between the birth itself and her in a tub and the light kind of reflecting off her body. Actually, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I, I found this movie intensely moving and kind of a celebration of life. When yep. I saw it, my, my girlfriend was saying to me the other day that she said, Oh, I think men like that movie better
0: because, because <laughs> they don't understand. Well, Cause
1: it's like women, w- men's regarded as kind of like this secret knowledge, but women sort of know they might have to experience this one day and it's less m- kind of mystical to them.
0: And there's something kind of ecstatic of the way he cuts to his, his wife's face as she's giving birth, yeah. and then it cuts to, like the baby being like held or in the water. When in
1: reality, it's like, "Whoa, this hurt a lot." Well, it's definitely like a man looking at his beautiful wife, yeah. And being like, oh, like, oh look at this, this
0: act bringing life into the world. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so I don't know.
0: Oh, but then you have the one where it's just an autopsy shown in vivid detail. Oh, okay. Can I talk about that for a bit? The yep. act
1: of seeing with one's own eyes. I watched that this week finally because I thought it's now or never and it is uh, a couple of different autopsies and it starts uh you see a couple of different dead bodies on slabs and the pathologists are measuring them and i think okay this isn't so bad and then a pathologist drills into a skull and pulls out the brain and then you think okay this is pretty brutal and he throws it on his head he's like look at me i'm davy crockett (laughs) and then and then later there's this kind of like overweight corpse on on the slab and and one of the pathologists fucking cuts open her stomach and the, the fat inside looks like foam. And, yeah. and so it's 30 minutes of that. That's
0: just, real life.
1: Well, horrible, horrible. I, Honestly, I don't know why I made it all. I think I just made it all the way through. Just, just you were just pinned to your chair. It was, it, well, you know, with my eyes through my Close. fingers. It, it, it was just a fucking horrible experience. But I kind of appreciate Brackage's. You threw on like a mondo movie
0: afterwards. You're like, I need to chase this down.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate Brackage's career long attempt to like encompass all of human existence in his movies.
0: <laughs> well, it's know? about making the audience feel something. Which you know, when people talk about art or experimental cinema, that's what they always yeah. go to. Like, you know, just supposed to, you know, bring up some emotions in you, even if it's emotions that you don't like.
1: Well, so I saw some people say about the act of seeing with one's own eyes that you're supposed to get... Highly n- erotic. Highly erotic, <laughs> yeah. They say that uh, you get numb to it, mm-hmm. and and it starts to become just, like, the color red and meat, and this, you're put in the headspace of the pathologists who see this every day, to which I say I never got numb to it. <laughs> I found it an absolutely horrifying experience from being a gag.
0: Well, this is why we're doing an experiment where me and Will will watch the act of seeing with one's eye every day yes. for the following two years. Yes. But moving from this horribleness, we could also go to something a little bit more playful, like Maya Darren and Alexander Hamid's Meshes of the Afternoon, which is made in 1943. This is like the urtext when it comes to this specific kind of
1: playfulish mm-hmm. kind of psychodrama is how it's been called as well. Very from that era when like, Freudian psychology was kind of hip, you know. And what people associate
0: with, like, the cinema of David Lynch, that kind of like, well, what's going on? It kind of makes sense, but it
1: doesn't make like, sense. Like, dreamlike, full of heavy symbolism, like like the key and yeah. the knife. There's a guy that she keeps following, and he turns around, he's got a mirror for her face. Yeah. Oh, man. I guess the history of experimental film, you know, stretches back to pretty close to the beginning of cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Like, the real urtext for experimental film is Han- Hans Richter in the 1920s, who did the first kind of abstract films. Actually, not the first abstract films, mm-hmm. but he gets written into history as having done yeah. it. And then, you know, there's, there's the post-war European... Experimental film, whether it's sort of cubist or dadaist, like Man Ray, that kind of stuff. You know, uh, the Wikipedia synopsis would be <laughs> that it was a reaction to the horrors of the First World War, and they were so angry and and they wanted to uh, disrupt all of society through these films. But *Meshes of the Afternoon* is, I guess, the quintessential or the first really popular American avant-garde film.
0: The film school version, if you will. Yes. Even though Maya Darren was not in film school at the time, but this is the film that. People when they first pick up a camera, they try to do something like this. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> it's like kind of deep, and I think the one thing that they miss that Maya Darren does with um, her husband at the time, Alexander Hamid, is that it's
1: actually playful in Meshes of the Afternoon. Yeah, like the way the camera shakes and then she shakes as well. And it's funny to see three Maya Darrens at a table <laughs> together.
0: Yeah, a real twin dragons kind of situation. Oh yeah, yeah, multiplicity <laughs> and. I mean, that's the one thing that, you know, I think is lacking in a lot of those kind of films that I see is that there's no fun in them. There's no playfulness. <laughs> because you're breaking the forms that you see every day, it has to be dead serious, mm-hmm. which is always a little bit like, ah, oh, man, I'm not a big fan of this. But then like, you have people like Norm McLaren, who his films are nothing but playfulness.
1: He's the fun
0: Stan Brackage.
1: Exactly. He's he's Canadian, by the way. The National Film Board's, one of one of the Canadian National Film Board's most famous filmmakers. Technically Scottish, but we like to say that he's Canadian. Well, Canada's a multicultural society. Exactly.
0: And like we talked about him in the NFB episode that we did. But what his films do is kind of playing with the form of cinema to do a bunch of playful stuff, whether it's pixelation which is another form of stop motion, or it's syncing up kind of like drawings to the music that's happening on screen. Like
1: Brackett, she will often draw directly onto the film, but it will be synced up to an Oscar Peterson piece. Exactly. Yeah. So,
0: you know, it's enjoyable. Like, it's fun. This is the stuff that when people go like, oh, you know, experimental cinema, anyone can enjoy it. The ones that win Oscars, if you will. <laughs> what was the name of that Mel Brooks short that he made? Oh, The Critic. Yeah, where it was just... Uh, Mel Brooks in an audience and you hear his voice watching an experimental film (laughs) and like critiquing it as it plays. Yeah, that's super funny. (laughs) And that may have kind of let people into the idea of like, oh, this is a joke. Mm -hmm. Because like, what is the difference again between parody and something that's actually moving?
1: By the way, did you venture uh, into Maya Darren's other films after she split from Alexander Hammett? No, I didn't. I did
0: uh, read that she passed away in 1961, so not that long after she made Meshes of an Afternoon, because I was surprised that she hadn't done that much stuff.
1: She only made, I think, like six or seven films. Mm-hmm. Um, you can watch them all in like 75 minutes. Yeah, There was At Land after Meshes of the Afternoon, which is very similar in style to Meshes of the Afternoon. But but after that, uh, so she married this guy, Taiji Ito, mm-hmm. uh, who I believe she discovered uh, sleeping on the floor of a movie theater, and she, she took in uh, who is an avant-garde music guy and her films you know after that become a little bit more um uh woo uh, woo well she got really into voodoo yes um, and, i remember reading that uh <laughs> you know i kind of uh miss the fun <laughs> yeah I, I miss the fun they become much more about like people people moving and doing doing uh, dance and martial arts rituals I guess one of the reasons she's really important after that is she became, her house became kind of like a salon for a lot of different artists and experimental filmmakers. I believe Stan Brackage lived on her floor for a while. Mm. Jonas Mika's lived with her for a while.
0: That's the thing that, like, you can't forget when you approach experimental cinema is that unlike almost any other form, it is often the result of incredibly poor people Mm -hmm doing this as an individual. Like Stan Brakhage, you know, he involved other people, but other than like the collaborative effort that it takes to make like a shitty exploitation film, like this is usually one person doing it themselves and they almost have no money. In a documentary me and Will watched, uh, Free Radicals, uh, Kent Jacobs talks about like, while he was making movies, there came a point where he saw like a bag of garbage and he's like, I gotta eat out of it because I'm so hungry. <laughs> and this is at a time where just making movies costs so much of money mm-hmm. because because it's film and you have to like buy the film, develop the film and then find a way to project the film. Mm -hmm. Like it's crazy that these people felt so passionate about this that this is the only way and they had to express themselves.
1: And yet even though these films are so so much the product of one person's vision oftentimes they often emerge from a scene.
0: Yeah, a collaboration like a co-op.
1: Yeah, like they were in the same community and they were showing their films to each other and it was that kind of communal energy that spurred them on.
0: Because experimental cinema It has to have an audience, right? And when people get obsessed with it, like, you can show it to these obsessives. It's not like a movie that can go public and then anybody could enjoy. And that's probably why, you know, it was so productive and so like usually when you're talking about filmmakers they made like 70 shorts which is also why it's a little Mm -hmm. bit daunting where you're like how do I get into this
1: like I also think that those of us who kind of get into experimental cinema are kind of reacting to the idea of that scene almost Mm -hmm. like we man I wish I had friends like this I could hang out with exactly all (laughs) I have is Justin over here Uh, my only friend
0: really a slob
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah but but like you imagine uh, Jonas Meek is showing these movies at the filmmakers co-op and, and yeah <laughs> and you imagine uh like andy warhol sitting in the audience or or you know later on uh in the case of somebody like richard kern or nick Zedd, you imagine these cool filmmakers who are hanging out with like lydia lunch and maybe jean-michel basquiat is you wandering wouldn't around hang out with these people though <laughs> No, no, but it's it's fun to to read about and think about the scene. Yeah. (laughs) And the scene itself is split
0: into multiple different, like, facets. As you mentioned, like, there's avant-garde. Or there's also underground cinema, mm. which are kind of all mixed up in the same mush. Because we watch the work of the Kuchar brothers, which are experimental filmmakers. Like, they piled around with Stan Brakhage mm. and all these other guys. But they're usually put into the underground kind of category.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was Jonas Mikas who wrote about them mm-hmm. um, and kind of brought them to prominence. But they were these two. They were twins, right? Yeah. They came from the Bronx, and you know, kind of, kind of weird guys uh, who loved Hollywood melodramas and horror films and sci-fi movies, and made. Uh, Their own backyard versions of these that were heavily campy, uh, very queer and full of scatological humor. Damn, they love that. Without ever
0: imitating the stuff that they love, like they would always approach it from like a weird ass angle Mm -hmm. and, you know, like, hold me while I'm naked. There's a story there, Mm -hmm. but the way that they put it together feels like a weird uh, Fellini who got hit on the head, who all he did was make like MGM melodramas and then shot it in the backyard mm. with his mom and friends that they had.
1: Yeah, but but like dressed in these like ridiculous costumes and, and colors that'll sear your eyes and sort of the most elaborate sets that could possibly be made in a guy's apartment in the Bronx. <laughs> That's right. So you know I watched one uh, one of the one of their most famous ones. I believe it was just George who directed it, Sins of the Fleshapoids, which is set in a future society after a nuclear war where the survivors basically live in a permanent orgy and they have these human-like robots who serve them but one of the robots discovers that he i guess gets sentient somehow he wants into this life of sin as well so this is all th- this dystopian future world is rendered in people's apartments, and you know, with with absolute like blaring melodramatic music. They have great titles too, like a "Pussy on a Hot Tin Roof." I mm-hmm. think is one of them, or the
0: "Mongreloid." The "Mongreloid," yeah. <laughs> and they made so many. Like if you look at their IMDb, there's like eighty fi- shorts that they made because they just kept shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting.
1: And I believe that uh, George Kuchar is is really the Paul Simon of the duo. Mm -hmm. He, he was the one who was kind of the, the visionary who was more prolific and was just, I think he has something like 400 credits that he kept making, you know, in a variety of formats up until his death. He taught at the art Institute of San Francisco and he would get his students in on it and they would make, you know, shitty little DV movies. (laughs) He seems like a guy who was just, what I like about him is he seems like a guy who was just this compulsive creator. Yeah. And, Each individual film didn't particularly matter as just the constant flow of creativity.
0: Well, George Kuchar wrote a film that me and Will, we sat down, buckled ourselves in and watched all of because we own it on Blu-ray and it was finally time. And that's a picture called Thundercrack. Not directed by them, though. George Kuchar wrote it and it was directed by
1: kurt mcdowell Mm -hmm. who was i believe george's partner for a time and was an experimental filmmaker in his own right uh if you find the kuchar brothers too mainstream you can check out kurt mcdowell he has a movie called uh loads uh the title is literal it's it's uh, a series of encounters between of him giving blowjobs to straight men (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's right there on the yeah. cover. As someone who I uh, always feel more of an affinity for feature-length films, I'm like, ah, oh, man, Thundercrack. I, I can always check, check this feature-length, out. feature-length, all right. <laughs> Two and a half hours. Synapse Films recently put it on Blu-ray. It was kind of lost in the weeds for a long time. Half an hour of it was cut out. And they put out the way that it was meant to be presented, which is this epic... Uh, it has a narrative that you can follow mm-hmm. about the classic old... It's a wet and stormy night and a bunch of strangers get trapped
1: in a big mansion. And by that, I mean someone's apartment. Yeah, a real old dark house, which and you see the exterior of the old dark house as like a drawing.
0: Yes. And they all get in there, tell their stories and have sex with each other. It's in shot, graphic detail.
1: Uh, gay and straight. Yep. And, you know, you were saying that there are a lot of different factions, uh, experimental film, underground film. You know, there was also pornography in New York at mm-hmm. the time, which at this time was not as far from underground film as as maybe it would become later. So there are porn people who are in this movie mm-hmm. alongside them.
0: And I think that what Thundercrack does so well is that because it's so long you watch it in kind of befuddlement and as Will said he got Stockholm Syndrome <laughs> but I think the film is actually really funny as well yeah because this is a film where people will not shut up oh yeah. it's just constant a constant stream of dialogue even everybody. when they're fucking yeah love it <laughs> the only part that lost me is when they each go into the room and fuck each other in silence <laughs> which i'm like no 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 bring back the dialogue mm. this film has an intermission in it yeah right before the gorilla fucking starts
1: yes there's the, there's a gorilla uh, the big climax uh, a character is i think let out of the basement and he has giant uh, inflated testicles <laughs> uh very, very goofy stuff <laughs> yeah and
0: i think that a movie like thundercrack it has that level of like wow this is j- like funny as well like it's <laughs> Basically the same territory that Guy Madden plays in, mm-hmm.
1: but it's much more punishing. Well, I, you know, the Kuchar brothers are a very obvious influence on John Waters. Mm-hmm. I don't like them as much as John Waters, I have to say. I don't find them as funny as John Waters.
0: Yeah, I think that the act of making shorts over and over and over again... They're not trying to entertain you. They're just putting their thoughts and feelings on film. Yeah. Which at a
1: certain point you're like, ah, okay, I get it. I think they have less bite than John Waters. Mm. Um, I think another thing that's different from him is John Waters is much more of a careerist. Mm -hmm. I understand the Kuchars often resisted attempts to put their movies on DVD because they felt bad collecting a lot of money for them when so many of the people they worked with didn't make any money. Um, John
0: Waters doesn't have that problem. He doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Give him the money. I mean, we can't do an episode about experimental cinema without talking about the
1: granddaddy of it Canada's own Michael Snow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wavelength. So uh, I saw Wavelength a year or two ago at the Tiff Bell Lightbox. And then after seeing Wavelength, I had to watch an hour long filmed recording of Michael Snow doing free jazz. <laughs> And I wanted to kill myself. And I couldn't walk out because Michael Snow was in the audience.
0: (laughs) Is there no worse hell than this? Oh, my God. I I mean, like, Wavelength is the (laughs) one that everybody goes to because it's usually showed first in whatever university class that you have to. (laughs) And people are like, what is this? Like, this is crazy. Just a long,
1: slow zoom across a room. Yeah, you get closer and closer to this white wall with a picture on it.
0: And then at the end, you realize it's just a pair of butts. Yeah, well, <laughs> that, That's not true.
1: <laughs> but, but a couple of times this shot is punctuated by a couple of people, like, walking into the shot. Is there a murder that happened in this? Well, what you realize is that this house or this apartment uh, exists for years and years and years, and so many different people go through it, and yet the apartment remains eternal. Mm. Um, and also... You know, if you watch it on a 16 millimeter print, which I think is what you're supposed to, you you become aware of just like the intensity of the 16 millimeter image and the way the white looks on film. Well,
0: when you're watching it, usually in the way that, this cinema is supposed to be viewed in like a closed off small space with the projector whirring behind you. You become very aware of the sound of the projector Mm. and the light and the way that it's blasting onto it.
1: This is another like barrier to experimental films being accessible is because so so many of them depend on the actual texture of the film.
0: And, you know, when you go to groups like this, if you're a newbie walking in, there's that feeling of like, oh man, everybody's getting this, but I don't. I remember... When I was working at a video store, they they did an experimental music performance that was just someone running a chain across like a metal drill Mm -hmm. for 90 minutes. (laughs) And that's what you picture is going to happen at these things, which is Mm -hmm. not always the case. Mm -hmm. But you got the writings of Jonas Mikas, like his movie journal that was recently published, right?
1: Yeah. So Jonas Mikas used to write this column for, you know, 10 or 15 years in The Village Voice that... Was the chief like forum that promoted experimental films. It's an interesting collection of articles. It's an interesting historical document. Where- this is great. You should check it out. Yeah, it's like he's talking about all these films as they keep de- debuting. and He's talking about like the legal battles he's fighting for. You know, something like uh, Flaming Creatures, yeah. or a movie like that. He's not much of a critic mm-hmm. because every- but that's not his position.
0: <laughs> yeah, because he was the publicist of all these people. Yeah, so it's
1: difficult for him to like criticize them. Well, you know what he does. He'll he'll say something like, a "Dog Star Man has just premiered," and it. It is a pokal. It is the greatest vision in film. What is it about? Who can say? <laughs> the, uh, to, wait, wait, wait. To, Jonas Meekus? <laughs> to describe what what dog star man is about is to domesticate it.
0: <laughs> and you know <laughs> You can buy that once, but that's what he uses every (laughs) single time and everything that he writes about. So
1: writing about experimental film is very difficult because it's either that or it's kind of... Boring, academic, like, breakdowns.
0: That's, like, the toughest thing, right? And, like, experimental cinema, basically you can tell someone, oh, you should go and watch this and see how it moves you, it moved me. Mm -hmm. But then, like, when you start breaking it down and you have to write your thesis about... Uh, the films of um, like I don't know Joyce Wyland. you're like mm. uh oh and like I understand that we're missing so many other filmmakers while we're having this discussion mm-hmm. like people are like what you didn't talk about this person or that person or this person
1: Warhol we barely mentioned
0: we did a whole episode yeah. on Warhol and like it, it's I, I just hope that people listening to this go, you know what, if those dum-dums can talk about it, I can enjoy these movies too.
1: Maybe a good starting point would be Flickr Alley put out a great Blu-ray set of kind of the history of American experimental film. Mm-hmm. Check, yeah, that, check that one out. And that one's still in print,
0: so it's easily accessible. And we'd be remiss not to mention the fact that experimental cinema still exists to this day in these organizations, like especially in Toronto, which for a long time was famous for his experimental
1: cinema. I mean the cutting edge, I guess, experimental cinema is being shown at, for example, way Lengths at tiff mm-hmm. which is a little program unto itself really. yes um
0: uh, i mean yeah. like i recently had a chance to check out isaiah medina's uh 8888 which mm-hmm. is like a feature-length experimental film that he made which is amazing mm-hmm. and i would highly recommend to check it out what it is is like all these different voices of people kind of cutting in and out through these pictures that you slowly start to form an image of what's going on and all these characters intersecting but it's still very vague and it's about like the drama that comes out of that so as far as experimental features go this one is a little bit more narrative even though it takes a form that like people aren't used to seeing so i would recommend anyone if they want to check it out like as an a starting point mm. for like modern day experimental cinema because even though we live in an age of YouTube where YouTube poops are the rage yeah, that's you know right. this generation's experimental cinema <laughs> yeah. where um you see Uncle Phil talk about mashed potatoes for 15 minutes yeah uh, it still exists in these forms of like co-ops and like screening groups where they often still do it on Super 8 or 16mm as well
1: well here in Toronto we have Ad Hoc where I mean it's it's more nostalgic frankly yeah. they show they play a lot, of, a lot of retrospective work yeah bracket stuff or Warhol stuff.
0: What I'm trying to say is just pick up a camera and go make your own yeah, that's to right. express yourself. And that's pretty much it. So,
1: uh, Justin, do we have any letters this week? Uh,
0: do we have letters? Well, so you can send us as per usual, your letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And I got to mention this week, we got a lot of them and thank you very much for sending them all. Wow. So if we go a little bit quick through them, I'm sorry. And if uh, we didn't mention your letter on air, uh, I'll try my best to reply to it personally. So this letter is from Stephen Vag, and it goes, Love the show. Man, this guy knows how to get his letter read on this podcast. <laughs> Dear Will and Justin, I hope you are both well. My name's Stephen. I'm an Australian writer living in Los Angeles. I just wanted to say how much I love your show. I've listened to every episode and enjoyed them all. I learned fresh and new things constantly, and I've been introduced to many filmmakers about whom I knew nothing. It's great fun, accessible show, and you should be very proud Goddamn. of it. Yeah. I know you get bombarded with ideas for shows all the time, but I hope you don't mind me throwing my own into the ring. I'd love to hear a screenwriter-focused episode. Maybe something on one of the directors. Maybe William Goldman, Roos Prar, Jabvilla patty chayefsky or francis marion maybe one where you compare a script easily available on the internet with the final film e.g goldman's butch cassidy or dan o'bannon's alien keep up the good work and thanks for making such a great show steven thanks for the honestly letter, we have to do this soon. and we've talked about it a lot but
1: and, but we've had a few letters pointing it out and i think it is uh, a bit of a blind spot in our, our tourist focused <laughs> just podcast. recently
0: i brought up one of the writers that were mentioned which was replied with Ugh. I don't know. <laughs> Try to guess who. Yeah. It's not Francis Mary. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we'll definitely in the probably the next few episodes have to like talk about a yeah, screenwriter because it. we've done uh, cinematographers, critics. It's time to finally get to the true architect, as Pauline Kael would say. And of then, cinema, And then
1: get back to the real architects, the directors.
0: That's right. Uh, this letter is from Jack Burnham. And he goes, hello, Justin and Will. I was wondering if you'd ever consider doing an episode on the films of Alain Robbe grillet I really love your episodes or more esoteric directors, and I feel as if Rob Grier is someone who is still somewhat under-discussed. I think you guys might have an interesting thing to say about the overlap of capital A artiness and exploitation elements of his films. Anyway, love the podcast and always look forward to it. So, Ana Rob Grier is a novelist in France, and he became a filmmaker. He's most famous for being the screenwriter of Last Year at Bad. Mm. He would do, like, deconstructionist works of, like, fiction that are very difficult to read because it's not your daddy's novel. He he also did a lot of like deconstructist films as well like one of them i don't remember the title that kind of like broke down a spy film like people realized they were in a spy film and they tried to escape the narrative and he also did a lot of like bdsm-ish kind of erotic cinema mm. one of the reasons we don't talk about him very much is is that while he was alive, he refused his films to be released on VHS. Mm. So it was only recently, I believe in the UK, they did a big box set of his work and they did it in North America as well. But for some reason in North America, it doesn't have the extensive Tim Lucas commentary tracks on them that gives context to them. Personally, while I love Last Year at Marion Bad, which is almost 100% his baby, He, if you read the script, it actually, he like listed the camera moves and stuff like that in wow. it. Wow. That then Alain René went and did himself. I'm not familiar with the films that much. I'm interested, though. Yeah, that's definitely one on the list because we love doing um,
1: esoteric directors that when people see the title, they go, I'm not going to listen to that. I don't know who that is. The line between art and exploitation. That's right out my alley.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Him, Jess Franco. What's the difference? anyway love the podcast and always look forward to it i think it became a favorite as soon as i found out that you guys found the bruce lee entry in david thompson's biographical dictionary of film as ridiculous as i always have that if anyone listening doesn't know that entry let's not spoil it for them (laughs) like go read it because it is ridiculous Mm. 9-11 is involved (laughs) and our final letter is from liam hart and it goes hi justin and will I'm a huge fan of the podcast and have now caught up with all the episodes including the Patreon scloozies. It truly is the most enjoyable film podcast out there. All caps... Tons of exclamation points. Fuck film spotting, to be honest. Hell yeah,
1: fuck film spotting. Let's start a feud. No.
0: (laughs) As someone from the UK, there's a certain filmmaker whose work I've often heard criticized and derided, yet I've never seen even so much as a trailer for any of his works. That man is Tyler Perry. (laughs) From what I can gather, Perry's work is consistently panned, ridiculed, and demeaned, yet his films seem to consistently do well. Can his films truly be that bad? Are critics dismissing the career of an african American auteur? How does this mysterious figure continue to rake in the cash while remaining a punchline among critics? I hope you can shed some light on this, the greatest mystery of my life. All the best, Liam James Hart. Have you seen any Tyler Perry films? I have not seen any Tyler Perry films. Wow. I have read a lot about them, though, and every time that I mean to go watch one, like Medea's Boo, Halloween, uh, whatever,
1: <laughs> I don't. Medea does something cheap or Medea needs a
0: kidney. (laughs) I don't, I feel weird to just go and like to ridicule them, Yes, which is how a lot of the people that I know when they go see a movie like that in cinemas that's the position
1: that they're taking. So which ones have you seen? I've seen two of them. Okay, I've seen A Diary of a Mad Black Woman, Mm -hmm. which was the first one.
0: And that's the one that like was a massive box office success.
1: Yes. And I've seen a Medea Christmas.
0: You didn't see the one where isn't she
1: goes undercover with Eugene Levy or something like that? Yeah. Medea's Witness (laughs) Protection. I didn't see it. No. Um, You know, these movies are made for church going black audiences in the United States for the most part. I understand that a lot of them are rather socially conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, they're made for audiences that obviously aren't Justin and I. Yeah. And aren't the mainstream of film critics either. You know, I, I what I can say is that I really enjoyed Diary of a Mad Black Woman because it is nuts.
0: From what I've read about Tyler Perry, the link between him and Oscar Michaud is very tight. Oh, yeah. Especially the way that, like... When people talk about his films, they often mention that they're very shoddily made from a technical standpoint. The writing is very didactic, but like Tyler Perry seems to know exactly what his niche is and he's playing into that on every level. He makes sitcoms, he makes plays Mm -hmm. and he makes movies Mm -hmm. and he's been able to create such a massive fan base from that. So it's like Will said, these movies are not for me
1: or for him. But Tyler Perry also is in talks to play me show in a biopic. Is he?
0: Yes, that would be amazing because you know what? Tyler Perry pretty decent actor when he's playing it straight oh yeah we liked
1: him in gone girl i'm yeah, sure
0: um, uh he was in star trek
1: the reboot yes that's right but diary of a mad black woman i thought was super fun because it is you know 50 percent absolute uh dead serious melodrama really heavy melodrama 50 percent guy dressed as a woman doing shenanigans and it ends with this Incredible musical number in a church. It's so outside, kind of what you would normally get from a professional film that you have to kind of sit jaw agape.
0: What's funny about (laughs) uh, when you describe it like that, from what I've read, it actually kind of plays into the stuff that you and me like, like the crazy Hong Kong cinema or like Bollywood cinema. You know,
1: Bollywood is what I thought when I was watching this movie, just with the heavy tonal shifts. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I once spoke to somebody who had reviewed Tyler Perry plays back before he was a really famous filmmaker. And he talked about how kind of energetic they were and how much audience participation was involved in them. So obviously, he's he's working on a different kind of energy than um, mm-hmm. you know a lot of a lot of the films. Uh, a lot of mainstream films. That said, his politics seem a little questionable. Ooh, very conservative.
0: <laughs> yes. So this week, our Patreon is on a certain Mr. Tarantino's film, Kill Bill. A loaded topic these days, isn't it? Yes. And me and Will talk about our feelings of the movie when it came out. And we talk about our feelings of the movie now. They may not be uh, the same. Who knows? You'll have to listen to the episode. You're going to want to hear this one, folks. (laughs) And so it's $5 a month to become a Patreon subscriber. You get a new episode every week. Uh, Do it now if you like us, please. We appreciate it. Keep the lights on. (laughs) So next week, Will, ah, it's finally come the time that we're doing uh, one of the big guys because we're going to be talking about Mr. Steven
1: Spielberg. But not just any Steven Spielberg. No, we're going to be talking about bad steven spielberg even uh the most successful director of all time sometimes um 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 strikes out what, i was trying to figure out what the sentence should be <laughs> and I, and I what clever turn? That. and and i i you I myself my, struck out yeah will sloan you <laughs> think it's nothing but pearls of wisdom but
0: sometimes you know he doesn't really hit that Out of the park. (laughs) There you go. That's why you do a double team so you can pick off off the other person. We're not quite sure exactly what movies we're going to watch. I know I'm going to make Will watch 1941, Mm -hmm. uh, a film that is often considered Spielberg's worst. Also going to watch an Indiana Jones film. Ooh, which one could it be? You may be surprised. I know which one
1: I want it to be.
0: (laughs) I know which one it's... Yeah, and I agree with you. That's the one we're going to talk about. Um, We're also going to try to... Played in a way that it's very easy to do an episode where you just watch like the lost world and it's like bad or like the big action blockbusters that didn't work now
1: it's time for <laughs> how did this get made
0: <laughs> and i think that i'd like to approach it in more of an idea of like why is this bad like what do we like about steven spielberg in this that's not working and why would he approach this material so that's going to happen next week and until then my i'm justin clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening so, Will, we're going to do something that I don't think we've ever done before, which is we're going to read some letters in the back matter. Ooh. And so Why got... did you do a ghost sound? <laughs> because we brought these letters, assumed dead, back to life. Oh, nice. Where we can finally have a moment for them. And by have a moment for them, I mean not read them all out out loud, but just kind of sum up the idea of sure. them. So we got a letter here from Dan Dillon, and it was about a 1517 to Paris. And he was just wondering specifically what Will Sloan had to say about it, because Because you went and saw this this week, right?
1: I am not in the habit of missing a new Clint Eastwood movie. Except
0: for Jersey Boys, and he will never forgive you for that.
1: I didn't see Jersey Boys because I was starting to be let down by Clint around that awards bait era. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, American Sniper got me right back in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you were like getting hyped up for this movie. I remember you telling me that you were watching a bunch of Clint Eastwood films, feeling an affinity for the old man, who's probably a very bad person, but has passed the level of like... Do you think people are going to
1: call out Clint Eastwood at this point, or is he too old? Well, people call him, oh, you mean like in the Me, Me Too era? Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, if anybody digs up Sandra Locke's autobiography, maybe. But uh, are
0: people going to work that hard? I don't know. But he's still making movies, which is insane to me. He must have made some deal with the devil that's forcing him to make movies until he drops dead. Gotta
1: say, I saw him on the Jimmy Kimmel show this week and uh, he's not as lucid as he once was.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So this new movie, 1517 to Paris, was based on the story that happened a few years back where a bunch of Americans on a train in France stopped a terrorist who came on with some weapons.
1: And not just any Americans, three military vets.
0: And so Clint Eastwood decided to make a biopic, because probably he doesn't have to read scripts, he can just be <laughs> given the general idea of what the movie is. And it seems like a bold move, but in retrospect, it's just a lazy move where he casts the real-life people in the film.
1: See, I don't know if it's it's just a lazy move, uh, because... so I, kind- I didn't see the movie, so you will speak. I, of I kind of enjoyed this movie. Um, the first 40 minutes of it, I was not really on board. Mm-hmm. It seemed like kind of an after-school special mm-hmm. about them growing up. But then the minute these three guys go on their trip to Europe, literally just them for a long-ass time looking at tourist sites, ordering gelato. So it's like
0: before Clint-wise? Or... Yeah,
1: yeah, basically. <laughs> but But so little happens in these scenes, and they go so long. It's just them... You know taking pictures of the roman coliseum them ordering gelato and as my good friend randy from uh, these boys are good boys said rest in peace <laughs> rest in peace he said uh it's it's the most accurate depiction he's ever seen of boring guys <laughs> backpacking through europe And why
0: did you like this because it was breaking the cinematic forms you expect in biography frankly yes i so think it's like a fuck you to people who would pay money and go see this. well movie? i think
1: what i kind of liked about it was you know like stan brackage clint is trying to go for something very direct here i think he. He wants to just, just give you what he perceives as beauty, what he perceives as truth, with as little mediation as possible. Uh, it's not him going, man. These movies need to be two hours long. I guess just film this. This one's ninety minutes. Is it? And you feel those ninety minutes, don't you? But it's it's beautiful in a way. Like like there's a, a scene of these guys hanging out at an Amsterdam club, and you can tell Clint probably just shot this with an iPhone, mm-hmm. just going around going around this Clinton
0: club didn't himself yeah <laughs>
1: but can you imagine Clint in that Amsterdam nightclub Can you I imagine...
0: lo- like behind the scenes footage of Clint like using an iPhone like a lot
1: of this movie seems like documentary style where it's he's actually just following them around at the Roman Coliseum
0: you keep saying him and I feel like Clint's probably in his hotel
1: going like hey can you get this footage well I was wondering because I'm thinking do these tourists notice that Clint Eastwood is you know <laughs> walking around with these guys so you know you're watching this movie and you're thinking god the guy who made Unforgiven the guy who you know, one of the most beautiful movies ever made is The Outlaw Josie Wales. It looks incredible. And now here he is. Chantal ackermann it up. With a phone in an Amsterdam nightclub. And there's something, I, I think, kind of interesting about, like, this documentary style he's going for. Just something that's just so pure. Like, you know, it's it's going to sound really pretentious. I even made a joke about this before I saw it. About the idea of him interrogating the Hollywood myth-making apparatus. And yet, this is a movie about these three heroes that shows them- How boring they are. Just how boring they are and how random it was that they fell into this heroic incident on the train. So if
0: you watch the movie without any context of what it was about or what story it was telling, the moment that happens at the end is like, whoa, what?
1: Yeah, it would be insane. And that's why it's beautiful. Right? And I have to say that train fight at the end. Very well done.
0: Mm. Um, Clint uh, can pull off those yeah. uh, thrill moments. Remember Sully when the plane crashes?
1: Or, you know, the, Desert the storm in yeah. um, American Sniper. Mm-hmm. Very well done. So I don't know it's interesting, though. I it may be meaningless to anybody who doesn't know who Clint Eastwood is, but we all know who Clint Eastwood is. Yeah,
0: I, I, it almost feels like the value that you got from it is almost
1: 100% from the fact that Clint Eastwood made this film. That's probably true. And maybe it's unfair that I'm mm-hmm. cutting him so much slack.
0: Because if it was some nobody who made it, you'd probably be like, oh, boring. But
1: but I'm sorry, like the person who makes it and the context that falls in their career is very important to how the film is received and mm-hmm. what the film means. Yes.
0: So we got another letter here from a Jacob Jones, and he goes, I had a question about programming films at a theater. I feel I may have gleaned from past episodes that this might be something that Justin does. Anyway, was wondering how you started doing it and if you had any tips. It's an area I think I'd be good at and would love to do it in my spare time occasionally. Any thoughts would be helpful. Uh, Programming films, how did I get involved in this? Number one, you're going to hate how I got involved with all these people in the cinema, which is the worst answer, which is I was in a screening of 2001 a Space Odyssey and the manager at the time of the Bloor Cinema sat beside me and we started chatting and she added me to Facebook. And that's how I got involved in that scene.
1: Well, it definitely helps to be part of a community. Yes.
0: Right? So I would say, like, if you have a local theater, go out and hang out at that thing if you have cinema clubs go to that but most specifically the reason that I was able to like I do the Laser Blast Film Society at the Royal Cinema and the reason that came out of was that I have an urge to experience films with my friends like I love it I love it so much and in Toronto I always wanted to do this so I created what was called the laser blast film society where I bought a projector and it would just go to people's houses and we would just show films on the wall and we would have a discussion afterwards so it was literally an ad hoc film club mm-hmm. and from there Uh, A pal that I made through that, Peter Kaplowski, got an opportunity to program. So I got involved in that as well, which is how I'm doing it now when I get to program films at the Royal Cinema. So, like, basically the, like, starting level is get people involved in wanting to see films that you pick. I think that's probably the most important, because why do people get to program on some level is oh, well, I trust this person that they're going to show me something that I've never seen before and
1: that on some level I will enjoy. And I think there are just lots of opportunities to do it. I mm-hmm. mean, all you need is a space that you can rent. Like if you have a library that's mm-hmm. willing to give you the space or something, uh, you need to market it through perhaps Facebook. Like, truthfully, it can be hard to, it can be hard to, I guess, get your foot in the door of yeah. knowing where the audience is. It's um, almost
0: impossible to where, like, the thing about programming films is because I started with a bunch of friends, and as time went on, those friends kind of like, you know, it reached a point where I'm just watching it with a very small group of dedicated people. And like my co host of Loose Cannons, Matthew Kumar, that's how we befriended each other, was through that group. Because we weren't really friends before that. I was actually more acquainted with his girlfriend at the time than I was with him. And Matthew Kumar was a scary, angry Scottish
1: guy. <laughs> yes, I'm still scared of him.
0: <laughs> and uh, thanks to a group like that, you make like really long-lasting connections. But as far as like programming in like real cinemas for money, that's much more difficult. It involves a lot of different things. Like uh, renting prints, renting the cinema... And by prints, I mean digital prints and paying like rights and stuff like that, advertising and getting people to come see the stuff Mm -hmm. like people only want
1: to go see movies that they know or that they're new and have heard about. Yeah. But I mean, through that ad hoc film society you start, it may fail, but it may also allow you to find who the people are Mm -hmm. in your community and you know, to create a community.
0: And I think that the most important thing that you can do if you're trying to do this programming stuff is create a brand. Mm -hmm. So like when people know like, oh, this like community or co-op or society play like a certain kind of movies, I've like some of them, I will continue to give a chance when they play a movie that I don't know. Mm -hmm. All right, well, thanks for your letter, Jacob. And uh, let us know how it goes.